Welcome to the Virtue Podcast. My name is Tiffany Velasquez, and we want to thank you so much for joining us today. I am super excited because today we are launching our first week in our new series we are calling Seven Signs in the Gospel of John. And if you haven't joined a Harvest small group, now is a great time to join. In these small groups, we talk about the series that we're studying together, and we have small groups that meet within the proximity of our local churches at our Orange County campus, Riverside, and in Maui. And we also have small groups that meet online all over the United States. So now is a great time to join a small group. Well, seven signs in the book of John has got me thinking about signs and the significance of signs. Uh, They can be so helpful, right? I remember when I was little, my family, uh, myself, my mom, dad, and my little sister were road tripping to Parker, Arizona for my great grandma's memorial service. And uh, we had rented a four-door sedan, just a little car, and we hit the road. And uh, if you know my dad, you know that he's very introspective. He's very contemplative, and he loves stories, and he loves songs. There aren't many things that don't remind him of a story or a song. And that's the way he taught us lessons growing up, through those very things. I remember so many Bible stories because he— acted them out for us and put us in the story, and he wouldn't just read us a story. In fact, recently I had asked my my dad to read a couple of my daughter's uh, books with her as she was learning how to read, and I left her with a stack of them, and when I picked her up, I said, hey, how many books did you read? And she said, just one, and it was about a boomerang, and they had literally like made a boomerang, gone outside and talked about how boomerangs work, and looked at the history of the boomerang, and let me tell you, she learned that book inside and out, but they only read one book. Very introspective and very contemplative, but anyhow, uh, I learned many lessons like that growing up, especially Bible stories. And on this particular road trip, we were on a highway, and um, my dad saw a whole field of sheep. But in order to get down to those sheep, there was a pretty rocky, you know, ditch. And remember, we were in that rental car. So we were going to have to drive this rental car down this big ditch on the side of the road to see these sheep. But my dad was determined to see them so that he could tell us about the sheep and the shepherd. Well, I'm assuming that was the illustration that he wanted to tell us, but we never quite got there uh, because as soon as we got down to those sheep on that, that rough road down that ditch, two huge barking sheepdogs started bolting over to us from, I mean, a pretty far distance. And they ran so fast, they hopped the fence and they began to chase us. We got in the car so fast and those dogs continued to chase us all the way up on the highway. I can still hear their paws, their nails scratching on our car. But, you know, I was thinking that would have been a great place for a sign that read, stay away from sheep. Guard dogs on duty. (laughs) Signs are helpful. They're helpful because they indicate the probable presence or occurrence of something else. They're indicators of what happens next. Think about common signs that you see every day. Caution, slippery when wet. Okay, walk slowly. Be careful. Caution, this beverage is extremely hot. Or I think about on the freeway when you're driving. Next exit, in and out. (laughs) Well, in the Gospel of John, John focuses on seven very significant 
very specific signs that point to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. I love a clear objective, don't you? Tell me what to do, what you want to see the end result as. I love that. Well, at the end of the book of John, John gives a very clear objective for why he wrote this book. And he writes in John chapter 21, literally the the subtitle says the purpose of this book. And in verse 30, it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These are the things that we're going to be looking at together. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name the clear objective. We can break that down to say that John wrote this book so that we could see Jesus's glory, so that we could see Jesus's Godhead and his goodness. And that's why the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are so important because they allow us to see Jesus. And the more we see Jesus, the better we know him and the more we can strive to be like him. I love what Pastor John Corson says about the Gospels and seeing Jesus in them. He says, it's as if God is saying, when you open the New Testament, the first thing you'll see is the story of my son. But if you sleep through Matthew, there's Mark. And if you skip through Mark, there's Luke. And if you overlook Luke, you'll see him in John. I don't want you to miss my son. I want you to behold him. For when you see him, you will be like him. I love that quote. You know, out of the four Gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those are all called the Synoptic Gospels because these three Gospels contain a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same sayings, and they're often even related in the same relative sequence, the Synoptic Gospels. But John, what we're looking at on the other hand, was very selective in what he chose to record in the Gospel of John. He basically based the whole book on these seven signs or these seven miracles and the I am statements of Jesus. In the book of John, uh, we never hear about Jesus's boyhood. We don't talk about his baptism or his temptation or that night in Gethsemane because John chose to wrote about the miracles or as he refers to them throughout the book as these signs that pointed to Jesus's, again, his glory, his Godhead, and his goodness. John wasn't so interested in providing this orderly account of Jesus's ministry as he is in helping people see the glory of Jesus's divinity. He wanted people to see that Jesus is God. He wanted to convince his readers who are now us, right, of Jesus's true identity as the incarnate God-man whose divine and human natures were blended together. They were united into this one person, the person who was prophesied about all throughout scripture, Jesus Christ. Jesus became a man, we know that, at a point of time in history, and he did that without giving up his oneness with God. Philippians 2 gives us a a good message on that. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. He's talking about humility here, but he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
Jesus became a human being without a sin nature. And when the Bible talks about her and we as believers talk about Jesus being in the flesh, it means more than just Jesus had a physical body, which he did have, but he was a complete human personality. And the incarnation was uniting that divine and human into one being, one person. Jesus Christ was fully God and he was fully man. We know as believers, it's important to believe that Jesus is God incarnate, or another word, you know, God personified. But why? Why is it so essential? Without the incarnation, without that, we would not have Jesus's death on the cross. We wouldn't have his resurrection. And it's important because what we believe about Jesus's true identity really determines our eternal destination, right? Either we accept that uh, Jesus' sacrifice, believing, okay, he is God. Jesus is God in the flesh, dying on the cross for me, rising in power back to life, and we spend eternity with him. Or we disregard that, we reject that, and then we spend eternity separated from him. It's essential. It's essential to our faith as believers. And John knew that. He knew that well. And that's why he was so intentional about recording these seven signs pointing to that. Again, in John chapter 20, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He wrote it for those who had not yet believed and also for the believer. It's twofold, apologetic and evangelistic, because the more that we believe, right, the more roots we build in our faith, the more we experience Jesus, the more life that we're going to have as believers as well. These signs, which are referred to as miracles in the other Gospels, are given in the book of John to, again, authenticate or to confirm the ministry of Jesus and to reveal his glory. And they shout, Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And they're given to point people to the spiritual truth that lies behind the miracle. They teach us about that redemptive ministry of Jesus. John goes beyond meeting the physical need that Jesus addressed in the miracles, and he talks about the meaning behind it. Each of these seven signs were done publicly in the presence of eyewitnesses. They were each addressed as signs in the scriptures. And they support John's objective for writing this gospel, the one that we talked about just a few minutes ago. The first miracle of Jesus's public ministry or the first sign that we're going to look at today is in John chapter 2. And you're familiar with it, I'm sure. It's when Jesus turns water into wine. And this miracle or this sign really lays the foundation for all of Jesus's other miracles. On the surface, this miracle might seem simple. Maybe it's not, doesn't seem especially significant. But when you get to know the story's details and what they symbolize, we'll see why it's so important. So I'm going to just read John chapter 2 to you. If you have your Bible, read along. But if you're listening on a walk or in the car, I'm just going to read it to you. So John chapter 2 says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus replied, He said, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And then he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In Jesus's day, wedding celebrations lasted for a week. Looking back on my little simple wedding, that seemed like so much work. I can't imagine a whole week of celebrations. My daughter and I also just watched for the first time together, Father of the Bride, and I was just reminiscent of weddings and how much work and how expensive and and really how beautiful and how significant they are. I love that Jesus' first documented miracle or sign was at a wedding. That in itself just tells us that Jesus gives his stamp of approval, his covenant on the importance of marriage, right? Jesus found it important not only to attend a wedding, but also to display his first sign of who he was there. You know, the love and joy that takes place at a wedding, you can just sense it, right? At a wedding ceremony, those things are also so characteristic of the ministry of Jesus who came into this world because he loved us. We know that by John three sixteen, And he brings joy to all who believe. We know that because Luke 2, 10 tells us that he brings his birth brought about great news of great joy for all people. Also, you know, Jesus may have chosen a wedding, that kind of family situation, that family celebration to perform his first miracle at because it's something that everyone in every culture can relate to, right? Weddings. I want to take just a a quick detour or a quick break here to encourage those of you who are married to remind you that Jesus is for your marriage. He's for your marriage. And it's no secret that our marriages today are under attack. Just look around and you'll see it in the church, in the world, because marriage in its original context is really a picture to a watching world of Jesus's relationship to the church. Hence the reason the enemy doesn't like them, especially in the lives of believers. And it's no secret that that marriages, marriage in itself can be hard. It takes work. It takes faithfulness. It takes endurance and forgiveness in order to last. But a Christ-centered marriage that weathers the highs and lows of life, that perseveres through hardship and triumphs for Jesus— is becoming increasingly rare. So our potential impact for Jesus in our marriages and in raising the godly next generation in becoming that prayerful powerhouse couple, not one because of our successes or our financial gain, but because of how we're impacting the world around us for Christ is immense. And Satan knows that and he wants to destroy our impact. But Jesus, he that is in us is greater and he is for marriage. And he himself gives us his spirit to empower us and equip us. He promises that in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. He gives us the power of prayer as a resource that just direct access to him. He provides us with the body of Christ, godly men and women to come alongside of us and support us and 
counsel us and keep us accountable. Jesus is for the covenant and the sanctity of marriage. And I believe that this story shows us that in part by attending and performing his first sign of who he was at a wedding of all things. And you know what? Miracles are necessary in marriages right? Miracles are necessary in marriages, and God wants to do a miracle in your marriage. A couple other things to note about this sign. When Jesus addresses his mother, if you remember that we just read, um, as woman in most translations, it's interesting because it seems a little insensitive. And while the term in the Greek is one of respect, it's not necessarily one of warmth, actually. It's a little firm, You know, Jesus was just now entering into his purpose and his mission on earth. And it seems that in some way that because Jesus was now not only that son that she had raised from the time that he was little, but he was the Messiah. He was born the Messiah, but now he was walking in his earthly ministry as Christ, that there needed to be a little reassessing of their relationship. It needed to be redefined a little bit. Jesus loved his mother and he cared for her, but things were going to be different for them from now on. And it was for her good and it was for his glory what he was about to do. But I love Mary's response to Jesus' addressing her. She didn't skip a beat. Her last recorded words in scripture were Mary telling the workers or the servants, hey, do whatever he says. She points to Jesus and says, just listen to him. She wasn't acting as the liaison. She simply said, do whatever he says to do. And I think that there's some theological weight there, that there is one mediator between God and man, and it's not Mary, but it's the son, Jesus Christ. And the story goes on to show how the servants who followed Jesus's instructions one step at a time, they took those six stone water pots and they filled them with water. And then after that, he said, hey, go draw the water out. And they did exactly that. And the miracle there took place when these servants faithfully followed each step that Jesus had given them. They were obedient. They weren't half-hearted and they were patient. They didn't know what God was going to do, what Jesus was going to do, but they were obedient. And what I love about this story is at that time, the only ones who knew what miracle had taken place were the lowliest people at the wedding, right? The servants. And that's so often the blessing of serving in ministry, the behind the scenes where you get to see the Lord do these miraculous things to bless his people, and it blows your mind. I can think of so many times where I stood in the background and prayed for God to turn turn something around, or even to make something out of nothing for an event or a ministry opportunity, and he has. And everyone in attendance had no idea what had taken place until it was over, maybe, or maybe they never knew. It was for their good and for God's glory. These few things that I just mentioned there are things that we can pull out of this miracle, right? But the sign is that Jesus took an ordinary setting and it became the showcase for his supernatural power. Um, It's marked that one miracle demonstrates the power to work every miracle. If Christ can turn water into wine by his will, he can do anything and everything. This is a quote by, by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if Jesus has once exercised power beyond nature, which he had done here, he may readily believe that he can do it again. There is no limit to his power. 
I love that quote. John says this miracle gave a glimpse of God's glory. And the glory of Jesus can be found in his compassion. And this was a miracle full of compassion, wasn't it? The wine actually wasn't even a necessity. No one would die just drinking water at this wedding. All that was at risk was the pride and the reputation, maybe the bank account of the family of the bridal couple. Yet Jesus and his father counted that enough to do their first public miracle and sign there. It was the first time that Jesus revealed his glory when he walked this earth. And it's also when his disciples began to believe in him. Yes, when Jesus called his disciples, they believed him. But now they knew something was different about him. This miracle helped them to really see, even though later on we're going to see that, that they would see so much more even later on. Ordinary things become extraordinary things when they're blessed by God. God uses ordinary people, and only he can make something from nothing, which is what he did in this miracle. God takes our empty places, those empty places in our lives, and he fills them with things that are so much greater. He supplies our needs from his glorious riches, is what scripture tells us, and we end up getting much more than we would have even asked for originally. Perhaps that's another lesson that he wants us to learn. He wants to do something supernatural in the everyday events of our life as well, not just the big things, but the everyday things. You know, Jesus didn't stay in Cana and celebrate this miracle because he knew that human nature doesn't remember miracles for very long. It's true, right? People think that if they ask for a miracle and God grants it, they'll trust God forever. But really, miracles only make people believe temporarily. And then when the magic or, or the hype wears off, so oftentimes will their belief you know, real faith isn't developed in that way because human nature will just want something else, some another miracle, another emotional experience after and then another and then another. Real faith is trusting in God for who he is, knowing his character, not just what he can do, but who he is. He is a God who loved you before you were born. If you're going to believe, you'll believe before you even see the miracle like Mary and the disciples. What seeing a miracle, seeing a sign does is it solidifies our faith. It doesn't necessarily start always that fire in our heart, but it solidifies our faith. When you see miracles or healings or answered prayers, I want to encourage you to take that time for a moment and, and rest or sit in that gratitude to the Lord so that we don't get caught up in what happened, that we forget who made it happen, right? It's all the Lord. I'll wrap this up. When Jesus looked at his mother and said, he said, woman, this is not the way it will be done or it's not my time. He says, my time has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, what Jesus was referring to were the days of his crucifixion, his resurrection and his ascension. He was speaking of the time when all of the sin of the world would be poured upon him and he would be, you know, tortured and humiliated and crucified on that Roman cross. That was the time, the time of the completion of his earthly ministry that was just now beginning to which he was referring. Ultimately, in the final hours before his arrest, Jesus prayed, Father, the time has come. So at this point, he was saying to his mother, Mom, I understand what you're trying to do and I appreciate it, but right now the time isn't right. It'll happen when it's supposed to happen. And today you might be facing what it seems like an impossible situation where you need God or you're asking God to make something from what seems like nothing, maybe a failing marriage. There's no embers even on the ground to start that fire again, or maybe the loss of a job or bad news from your doctor. This story 
of Jesus and this miracle that he performed should comfort us. It should resonate with us because Jesus is very concerned about you. The Bible says to cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. He cares about what you're facing and he has the very answer to your every problem and my every problem. And I think like Mary, we sometimes come to God and we say, God, I need you to do this right now. I'm desperate for you to come through for me in this situation right now and in this way. And maybe it's like we see someone getting away with their sin or we hear someone saying things that are untrue about us and we pray, Lord, intervene, do something about this. Sometimes God's timing is such that the situation changes. Yes, and he does that. He intervenes and abort mission, right? It changes. But sometimes God says, my time has not yet come. This is not the time for this to happen. But be patient. Trust me. Wait on me. I am faithful. Jesus' signs prove to us who he was and who he is and who he always will be, that he is our Lord and he is our Savior. He is our God and we can trust in him and we can rely on him because he is God in his glory, in his Godhead, and in his goodness.